You're listening to Friendly Connections, the podcast of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. I'm Chase Maxwell. Today we're bringing you a talk from our Untold Stories Labor History series, now in its 18th season. In celebration of Labor History Month each May, the Untold Stories series presents programs and talks on both local and national labor history topics. Past programs in the series have featured historian Robin D.G. Kelly, singer Larry Long, author Sherry Register, and walking tours by local historian David Reilly. The series received the 2003 John Sessions Memorial Award from the American Library Association for service to the labor community. Today's episode features a talk by author and lawyer Tom Copeland. In his book, The Centralia Tragedy of 1919, Elmer Smith and the Wobblies, Copeland, McAllister graduate and lawyer, tells the tale of Elmer Smith, also a McAllister graduate and lawyer. At the end of the Armistice Day Parade of 1919 in Centralia, Washington, legionnaires, veterans, and others hostile to the industrial workers of the world marched on the IWW Union Hall intending, again, to run the radicals out of town. The Wobblies knew of the plan and, on the advice of Elmer Smith, defended themselves and their hall. The attack began, the Wobblies fought back, four legionnaires died, and three others were seriously injured. Later, the legionnaires lynched one of the Wobblies. Twelve fellow workers and Elmer Smith were indicted for murder for one of the legionnaires' deaths. The jury acquitted Smith, but most of the others went to prison. Elmer Smith spent the rest of his life fighting both in and out of court for workers' rights and for the freedom of his co-defendants. Despite being jailed, ostracized, and disbarred, Elmer Smith never gave up the struggle. This is a story not often told, but it needs to be heard by all those interested in the struggle to secure the rights of workers. Untold Stories is co-sponsored by the Minnesota Association of Professional Employees, or MAPE. And now, Tom Copeland. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for coming. I'm excited to share my, the story of Elmer Smith with you tonight. I first heard about Elmer Smith in 1969 when I was attending McAllister College, where he graduated in 1910. The commencement speaker at that time was Booker T. Washington. He was the first of his working class family from North Dakota to go to college. And during college, he lit street lamps on Summit Avenue and he excelled as a debater. At that time, I was interested in early 20th century labor history and was familiar with the IWW, and I was also familiar with the Centralia, Washington case of 1919 when an Armistice Day parade led by American legionnaires attacked the IWW Hall. The Wobblies fired on the marchers and killed four legionnaires, and a mob that night lynched one Wobbly. Elmer Smith was one of those charged with murder. Although he was acquitted, eight Wobblies served long prison terms for their role. No one was ever charged with the lynching of the Wobbly. The Centralia tragedy of 1919, as it was known, was a confrontation that represents the high watermark in the suppression of domestic labor radicalism during the World War I era. During the 1920s, the Centralia case was a national rallying cry for labor supporters and liberals. Smith played a leading role in the Pacific Northwest labor movement during the 1920s and is one of the major figures in Washington state labor history. 
After graduating from McAllister and the St. Paul College of Law, now known as the Hamlin Mitchell, or Mitchell Hamlin College of Law, Smith moved to Centralia, Washington to join his family where he worked for a while as a public school teacher and then opened a law practice. He defended workers against lumber companies and collection agencies. Centralia, Washington was a small labor and lumber town in central Washington. In 1914, an IWW organizer was thrown out of town by the sheriff. In 1917, they returned and opened up an organizing hall in the downtown. The IWW was, and still is, a radical labor union that organizes workers under the slogan, an injury for one is an injury to all. They advocated for the overthrow of capitalism, did not believe in political action through political parties, shunned employer-employee contracts because they wanted the ability to strike at any time, and focused on organizing groups that were previously ignored, unskilled workers, timber workers, blacks, immigrants, miners, textile workers. They often clashed with a more conservative AFL union. The Wobblies were hated by just about everybody, except the working class, radicals, and some liberals. The federal and state governments suppressed them in a similar way to how the Black Panthers were suppressed in the 1970s. That's how I initially became involved with them at that time. Uh, the Black Panthers were the most hated group in the country, similar to the IWW. In 1917, there was a major lumber strike in the Pacific Northwest, mainly organized by the Wobblies. Because it occurred during World War I, there was great opposition to the strike from the federal and the state government and lumber owners. Wobblies were arrested as they rode freight trains into Centralia. Eventually, the strike was settled thanks to the efforts of the IWW. But lumber owners and town officials remained bitter in their opposition to the IWW. I interviewed one Wobbly who was part of the strike and he had this typical experience of he would get, on, get a job and start organizing and as soon as they found out who was organizing, he'd get fired. So he'd go to the next uh, job site. Well. Uh, when they were fired, they're blacklisted. So he would have to change his name. So on the new site, a different name, organized, he said, I get fired again to go to the next site. And he kept doing that. And he said, that one time I came to collect my pay and I couldn't remember my name. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Smith was a supporter of the strike and a vocal opponent to World War I, who quit his teaching job rather than sign a loyalty oath. In 1918, Centralia held a Red Cross parade, and marchers stormed the IWW Hall, burned the furniture and records inside, and dumped the Wobblies across the county line. They were threatened with more serious harm if they returned. The post-World War I era was a time of many labor strikes and suppression of radicals across the country. It was a time of the Red Scare, when Wobbly Halls were constantly raided and members arrested on a mass basis. In 1919, the IWW returned to Centralia to open up another organizing hall. In November of that year, there was a parade held to commemorate the end of World War I. Multiple threats were made against the IWW hall. The Wobblies asked Elmer for advice, and he said they had a right to defend themselves. Some of the Wobblies armed themselves and took up positions in buildings across from the hall. As the parade marched past the hall, some American legionnaires began charging the hall and some Wobblies opened fire. Three legionnaires were killed. The mob destroyed the hall and arrested everyone inside. One Wobbly, Wesley Everest, escaped out the back and killed another legionnaire before being beaten and thrown in jail. Elmer, who was watching the parade from his law office, was arrested, as was his father and brother. That night, the town's lights were shut off and a mob broke into the jail. 
They took out Wesley Everest and lynched him. Twelve Wobblies and Elmer were charged with murder of one of the Legionnaires. The jury convicted eight of them, and Elmer was found not guilty based on his advice to them. The next year, he ran for prosecuting attorney on the third-party Farmer Labor Party ticket to prosecute those responsible for the lynching. He came in a strong third, which was pretty good given the strong opposition to the IWW. Smith spent the rest of his life trying to get these men out of jail. He made over 250 speeches from 1921 to 1924 across the West Coast and Midwest. He spoke at the Opera House in Cloquet and spoke in support of a bitter paper mill strike. He made news wherever he spoke. And here's an example of this. I know everybody's not going to see this. But here's the industrial worker, Elmer Smith, in Skid Row meeting holds packed sweltering throng. You know, I mean, that, just the size of the headlines, and it just this long article, you know, goes on the second page, just on and on about his talks. And he was widely covered as he spoke, particularly on the West Coast. In Eureka, California, he spoke to a crowd saying, Abraham Lincoln, one of the greatest presidents we've ever had, said, if a majority should deprive a minority of any clearly written constitutional right, it would, from a moral standpoint, justify revolution. The commander of the American Legion said, quote, we don't recognize the right of Elmer Smith to quote Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> By what authority do you censor or interfere with my address, he said. By this authority, isn't that right, boys? And 50 Legionnaires stormed the platform and arrested, and the police arrested him and took him to jail. The next day, he was kidnapped from the police station by the Legionnaires and kicked out of town. My favorite story about his free speech efforts was in 1923 in his hometown of Centralia. I was able to uncover FBI files. He was spied on by the FBI for many years. ACLU records, a lot of communication back and forth between the ACLU and him and local supporters. Wobbly newspapers, a local town newspaper, uh, more detail than I had in any other part of his life. In 1923, Wobblies were arrested for selling their newspaper on the town street to support their lumber organizing efforts. The police also raided the Wobbly office and seized their records. Smith volunteered to give a speech the next Sunday to support their campaign. The police threatened him with arrest if he ch chose to speak. That Sunday, 150 people were in attendance. He started to speak, and they immediately arrested him. Other speakers were allowed to talk. The police later said that they arrested him because they were afraid Centralia citizens would attack him. But they also said that Smith said nothing objectionable, and the meeting posed no danger of a riot. These are like back letters and documents from the police, which is kind of interesting to read. Later, in, later in the week, they allowed a KKK meeting to proceed undisturbed. <laughs> In court, Smith was found guilty of speaking at a meeting that advocated violence, but he didn't get the chance to speak. He remained in jail for a day and was then released on bail. The ACLU was notified, and they wrote letters in his support to the sheriff. And here's another headline of the about in the middle of this, Centralia judge rails at IWW prisoners. And fellow worker Reagan requested if he could ask a question. Permission was granted. When he started to ask a question, he was stopped. Another fellow worker succeeded in asking whether the prisoner's constitutional rights were to be considered at all. Judge Dysart answered, no, I do not consider any of your constitutional rights. 
So they com police continued to arrest Wobblies for selling their newspaper. Smith organized another speech under the auspices of the ACLU. The local police consulted with the FBI, who recommended arresting him if he spoke. This time, 500 to 1,000 people were in attendance. Another speaker spoke without interference. Smith then got up and began his speech with, there's an old document which runs somewhat as follows. We hold these truths to be, as he began reading the Declaration of Independence, a police chief stormed the platform saying, for the peace and dignity of Centralia, I arrest you. At the police station, the chief took Smith's file cards and berated him for having written such radical and inflammatory words. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson wrote these words, he said. The chief then shouted to his deputies, I knew there was somebody else back of this. Get Thomas Jefferson. He's the guy you want. Elmer loved telling this story to audiences across the Pacific Northwest over the years. Weeks later, he gave another speech in town to 4,000 people, this time without incident. In 1924, Elmer was disbarred by the state of Washington for advocating an unlawful general strike in the lumber industry and for labeling the 1919 trial judge as a tool of the lumber trust and for making the following speech that they said incited violence and insurrection. There are two animals in this world for which I have a profound admiration. One is the lumberjack and the other is a mule. As between the lumberjack and the mule, I think more of the mule. Why? Because a mule is a profound animal and when he is through with these eight hours of work, he is through. And when you try to work in more than eight hours, you have a battle. How many people ever saw a mule lie down in a fenced-in yard where there was a fine haystack and a great big box of oats and starve to death? How many of you ever knew him to pull that? How many ever knew a lumberjack to come into Portland where there are millions of tons of food stored away and sleep in the street and go hungry? I am a profound admirer of the mule. I repeat it. So he gets disbarred for that. Uh, in 1930, he was reinstated. His views hadn't changed, but the anti-IWW passions had subsided. He worked tirelessly for many, many years to try to free the Centralia prisoners. By the time of his death, three of the eight had been released and one had died in jail. Smith neglected his health and died of a bleeding ulcer in 1932 at the age of 44. A lawyer with a heart is as dangerous as a working man with brains wrote Wobbly Ralph Chaplin about Elmer Smith. Chaplin was the Wobbly who wrote the song Solidarity Forever. Smith was a nonviolent man who advised the IWW, whose advice to the IWW helped precipitate violence. His lifelong efforts to free the imprisoned men ignited anti-radical passions wherever he went, often causing local officials to treat him without regard to his civil rights. He fervently believed in free speech and civil liberties, although his attempts to exercise those rights caused him to be arrested many times. The, IR, the FBI considered him a dangerous radical and spied on him for years after he was disbarred, and he was disbarred for defending worker rights. Smith also stands out as one of the most important figures in IWW history during the 1920s. His defense work on the West Coast helped the Union combat the attack on its rights to organize working people. The IWW attracted notice because it offered hope for the future and a sense of self-respect and importance to its members. 
It gave a feeling of power to those who were poor, downtrodden, and alienated from society's institutions. Although Smith could not join the Union because of his profession, he was, quote, a determined advocate and an admirer of the men he defended. He was a man of great courage who challenged the have-nots to claim their rightful share of wealth and power. A confident, charismatic spokesman, Smith provided leadership to the IWW at a time when it had few other active leaders and played a major role in turning back the tide of criminal syndicalism prosecutions against the Wobblies. He closely identified with his clients and fought for social justice during an era when the abridgment of civil liberties was commonplace. His personal life mirrored the optimism and crushing reality of IWW fortunes in the Pacific Northwest during the turbulent decade after World War I. Now I want to say a few words about how I came uh, to write about him. While I was at McAllister in 1969, I read a book, Rebels of the Woods, the IWW in the Pacific Northwest. The book, for the first time, identified Elmer Smith as being a graduate of McAllister College. So there I was. So with the encouragement of history professor Steve Trimble, in the back over here, I started taping interviews with his McAllister and law school classmates. Steve said, here, you know, there's a tape you to go out and talk to these people. So I did. And I started tracking down his surviving family and wobblies. For me, it was a wonderful 20 plus years of uncovering a life of someone who was forgotten. He left no personal letters or documents. I could only reconstruct his life through the memories of surviving family and friends. His wife, son, and daughter were alive. His brothers and sisters had all died. All the people that they married were still alive. I also was able to get concealed court documents of his disbarment and reinstatement. I was able to get his FBI files. ACLU files had a lot of information as well. The fact that he was so admired by the people I talked to is what kept me going. Here's the best example of this. This is a letter I got from Herb Edwards, who was the wobbly who was kidnapped with Elmer in Eureka and is a wobbly who forgot his name during the lumber strike. And I went to the IWA headquarters in Chicago and asked about Elmer Smith. And they said, well, Herb Edwards, he knew him. And Herb was out in Seattle. So I wrote him. And here's the letter I got back. Thank you for the 1972. Thank you for your letter. In Elmer Stewart Smith, you have chosen a grand subject, a very special human being. I'm proud of the fact that I shared moments of danger with him and that his moral and physical courage unflinchingly when threatened by a lynch-crazed mob, helped me to maintain my own self-respect as well as his. Without exaggerated windy eulogy, I like to use that old time-worn phrase to describe the big red-headed fellow. He was truly one of nature's noblemen, than whom I have known none better. He was intelligent, knowledgeable, eloquent as a speaker and defense attorney, and he had a strong social consciousness which gave him enduring compassion to the end of his life, for those who are victims of injustice or in trouble beyond their control. If he had any weakness, it was his ever optimistic belief and faith in the ultimate goodness of, in human beings if they are given a chance by a maladjusted society and a capricious nature. If I were to put it succinctly on a personal basis in my own favor, I would say that the fellowship of Elmer Smith was a bonus I received from being a member of the IWW. Now you get a letter like that, and you just go, wow, you know, how can I not continue on and try to find out more about him? Elmer's son and daughters were not radicals, and they suffered from being ostracized by the Centralia community. 
His son wouldn't read my book because he said it brought back too many painful memories. But he bought a number of copies for his friends. <laughs> Elmer worked with all groups on behalf of the IWW to try to release these prisoners. He worked with liberal church groups, the Communist Party, the ACLU, the AFL, socialists, anyone who would listen. These groups did not usually work well together with the IWW or each other. As I look back on those years, it's easy to see that their differences were minor compared to the differences with their opponents. Today, it's the same thing. Those on the left have much more in common than their opponents. It is sometimes difficult to unite our efforts. I think Elmer would have voted for Bernie in the primaries and Hillary in the general election. <laughs> when I think about Elmer Smith, I know that he got discouraged when he had to deal with police raids on wobbly halls, government suppression of his right to speak, being thrown in jail again and again, and being disbarred. However, he never gave up. The Centralia case ultimately takes on a larger meaning through the life of Elmer Smith. His lonely persistence kept the case alive and brought hope to the prisoners and their families. His personal sacrifice and commitment to nonviolence helped calm public hysteria. His honest and direct dealings with controversial issues were admired by the participants on both sides. Probably no other person who was not a Wobbly was loved as much as he was by the rank-and-file members. And his tireless efforts helped shield the Union from some of the onslaught against their civil liberties. Although he cannot be admired for neglecting his finances, his family, and his health, Smith stands as a model of con consistent, principled, and courageous fighter for social justice. By fanning the fire of discontent during his lifetime, he helped keep the flame of justice alive for generations. His persistence is the quality I most admire about him. Today, I sometimes get discouraged about issues such as voter suppression, killing of blacks by police, attacks on Planned Parenthood, LGBT people, and immigrants. But struggle goes on, and I hope we all can be persistent in our common fight for social justice. We've reached one of the best parts of the podcast, the Q&A with Tom Copeland in our audience at Miriam Park Library in St. Paul on Wednesday, May 4th, 2016. To make it easier for you, the listener, I've summarized the questions and we'll read them. Can Copeland comment on the process of researching his book and reaction to his book from the public and experts interested in his subject area? A couple months ago, uh, at the time I was writing the book, the internet didn't exist. A couple months ago, I'm going on the internet, Googling, you know, Smith, Elmer Smith, Wobblies, and here's this a book, a section of a book, History of the Tacoma Police Department. And in it is two paragraphs on Elmer Smith trashing him. Just, you know, that he's you know, a defender of murderers, blah, blah, blah. And there's a footnote, so what was the footnote reference? The footnote was to my book. <laughs> And so I track this person down, and I start an email exchange with her, and I say, you know, what, you know, what sources are you using? Because you're saying my book, and I certainly, oh, I don't know, it was somewhere, I've lost it, it's, you know, in my basement. And then she said, well, of course, you know, the IWW were murderers. They were just murderers. And she cited several uh, conflicts, labor conflicts, over the last 100 years. So I, you know, looked up, you know, what she cited, 
And well, not quite. And so I wrote back and said, you know, uh, here are four or five, six other examples of Wobblies getting killed. And I don't think it's fair to say that all lumber owners or all police or all government officials are murderers in the same way that you're trying to say that because one wobbly, two wobblies killed some people in Centralia, therefore the IWW is murderers. That was the end of our discussion. She didn't, <laughs> she didn't want to respond to that. Following that question, an audience member draws parallels between how the police treated the Wobblies and members of the Black Panthers movement. Can Copeland comment on these similarities? Yeah. At the time I was at McAllister and I had just come across Elmer Smith, there was somebody wrote an article in a North Dakota newspaper, and this was at the time that the police had uh, killed Fred Hampton in Chicago, broken into his house and just, you know, blasted away. And they were making, he was making a comparison with the Wobblies being in the Centralia case with a legionnaire storming the Wobbly Hall. And, I, you know, I thought, oh, oh that's kind of interesting. So that got me more interested in this. Yeah, I don't know what more to say about that. It just, it, there, there are similarities. I mean, clearly the government was uh, very much involved with shutting down the Black Panthers. There was a, a documentary on the Black Panthers on television, I don't know, a month or two ago. I don't know if people saw that. And I started bringing back memories of that, and particularly them showing up at the California Capitol with guns, with rifles. You know, I just thought, wow, you know, the people who were so freaked out about that are the same people now carrying guns, you know? Uh, what a difference, what a, what a difference attitude. Were there certain activities or information that the Wobblies kept secret out of fear for their safety, of being imprisoned, or fear of being compromised? Well, uh, I made a reference to criminal syndicalism laws. This is a time, and, and Minnesota only, it seems to me, got rid of this in the last 10 years, right? So these are laws, alien sedition laws, laws that essentially said that it's against the law to belong to an organization that advocates violence. So all you had to do was label the organization as advocating violence, and then since you're a member of it, you're gonna be thrown in jail, and people were thrown in jail for years for that. And so with the Wobblies, they had written a lot of inflammatory things. Now, but also, you know, Wobblies with a newspaper, people would just write articles. You know, it wasn't like necessarily officially wobbly positions on things. People would just write stuff, and it would be seen as inflammatory, much like some, the language of the Black Panthers, you know, very inflammatory. And so people seized on that. So the trials, so they would arrest people. And so, yes, some Wobblies would be hire, hiding their buttons, and not trying to identify themselves, but they'd get rounded up and they would show up on the trial and essentially the prosecution would just read from IWW documents and say, okay, radical, you know, advocating violence. And then once they could either get the person to admit it or prove that they were a member, that was it, they go to jail. Elmer Smith was involved in a number of these cases in Washington and California. And he was somewhat successful, more successful than anybody else in winning some cases. And the technique he used was, he said, uh, I forget which amendment this is, you have a right to face your accuser. And so he said, uh, unless you can bring forward the people who wrote these documents, you can't use them against the Wobblies because they're not able to face their accuser. And he won some cases. So in Centralia at the time, I didn't, I didn't elaborate on this, there was definitely a strong working class community that did support the IWW. 
and with support of, of Elmer Smith. I mean, these hundreds, thousands of people showing up at his talks. They had their own newspaper. He helped start a newspaper. Local merchants would advertise in his newspaper. And it, it was a central focus, uh, you know, railroad center, lumber center, organizing center, a uh, place where people go to get jobs. So there was a lot of tension. There's sort of the, the other two sides of the track kind of conflict. So Wobblies were there, but as I gave a number of examples, it's, they were oftentimes a run out of town. And so it was very, very brave for them to continue to plug away at this. Ultimately, why was Smith interested in the Wobblies and labor issues more broadly? Did these interests arise while he was at McAllister College? And what was McAllister's influence on him? His mother was his strongest influence, and she was urged him on. He was known as a liberal, a gentleman at McAllister and at law school. He, I have an, uh, got an essay that he wrote uh, when he was in high school, sort of this very idealistic, moralistic, you know, champion kind of story, uh, which I can see him emulating. Work, working class background, very sympathetic uh, to working class, and so didn't fit in with the classmates who went on to be lawyers, and lawyers and defenders of uh, employers. So he was obviously not part of the gang while he was at law school. And uh, so when he went out to Centralia, he was in his, his family, his father, they worked in the mines, uh, they were working class, and he was helped in the mines, he became a school teacher. He was never part of either group. You know, he was educated as a lawyer, unlike anybody else in his family, but not accepted by other lawyers in town. He was working class background, but not one of the working class, if you will, in his role as a lawyer. One of the people who were killed in the, in the raid on the hall was a well-known uh, high school football star in town, American Legionnaire, who Elmer Smith knew. And that this guy, they would have conversations. And, and he, the other guy would say, why don't you come over into our side? You know, he, he, life is going to be better when you're, when you're with us rather than with the Wobblies. And that years later, Elmer's wife said to me that this man tried to date her and that she was so embarrassed, she said, now you can't tell it, I can't put it in the book, <laughs> All right. that he used to date her. And at the trial, Elmer's wife and, and son is sitting on one side of the jury of the courtroom, and the wife and the widow and the, her son are on the other side of the courtroom. And, you know, they never spoke, and it was just like, oh, this is tense, tense times in a very small town. Why was there such animosity and, ultimately, violence between American Legion members and the Wobblies and Centralia? American Legionnaires, well, at the time of the Centralia raid, the National Convention of the American Legion was being held in Minneapolis. And they formed right after World War I. World War I ended in 1917, 18, 1918. And they formed as, essentially as a patriotic organization to promote 100% Americanism. So they immediately, of course, were denouncing the Wobblies. And were, they were, at that time, they were a very powerful organization. Because it's like, who would not join it? You know, you, you, you come back from the war, as millions of people are coming back from the war, you better join the Legion. Because otherwise, how, how, you can't be patriotic. And so there's a lot of pressure on people. And of course, very, very conservative. Radicals, and, you know, they're coming back and they're trying to get jobs. And now this is a conflict over who's going to have the jobs. 
And if you're a member of the IWW, you're trying to overthrow the whole, their whole system. And so they were just adamantly, adamantly doing everything they possibly can to keep the Wobblies behind bars. About 10 or 15 years ago, I got a call from a professor at Centralia College, a, a tech school. And he had read my book, and he wanted to nominate Elmer as one of Washington heroes or something. And in, in the Centralia College has a clarion in the, in the mall area with plaques of famous Washingtonians that the Centralia College would nominate. Dixie Ray Lee, a nuclear power person, the governor. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know. Okay. So he wanted to nominate Elmer Smith. So whoever going to the body, would, I think it had to go to the governor or someplace. And uh, okay, and the unions were behind it. But the American Legion and the Chamber of Commerce, this is, the, this is like 10 years ago, were against it. And so initially the governor said, oh yeah, okay, fine. And then got all the spirit, oh no, wait a minute, we better not. And then the unions came back and said, you better, or we're, you know, you're in trouble. So okay, all right, all right. So, so they did. So they had the plaque there. And his son and daughter showed up, which to me was remarkable because they were so shy and so uh, hesitant about this. They were afraid when they showed up of the reaction that they were going to get. In other words, they were still in the mindset of being oppressed. And they were welcomed with open arms. You know, people, oh, Elmer Smith's son, Elmer Smith's daughter, and they were just blown away. So that was very, very nice to see that. Wesley Everest was one of the Wobblies who was murdered in Centralia after killing a member of the American Legion in an act he described as self-defense. Many sources claim that Everest was a World War I veteran, but is this apocryphal? What was Everest's true background? In part of the research I was doing, uh, the, the information that was out there in, in all the books about Wesley Everest was he was a returning World War I veteran, um, and that he was castrated, and then he was hung, and then he was shot full of bullets. And um, the only thing that's true about that is he was hung. So I started, because so everybody would reference this, I started doing research, and I tracked back, well, where did this story come from? And it came originally from Ralph Chaplin, who wrote a little booklet about the case four or five months after the trial. He was never in Centralia. And I, I kept looking, well, where does this come from? Where does this come from? So I found in the University of Washington archives a police report, a fingerprint, you know, fingerprints police thing of Wesley Everest taken while he was in the jail after he was lynched and, and they cut down his body and they threw it back in the jail. So there are his fingerprints. There is a description, um, rope around his neck, one bullet hole, no mention of castration. The Wobblies never brought it up during the trial when it might have done him some good. The people who carried his body, the, uh, they got the other prisoners to carry his body, to put it into a coffin, to haul it out to a um, cemetery where the, the historian said he was buried in an unmarked grave. Well, you read the newspaper accounts and the Wobblies were having picnics on his gravesite for years and, and somebody finally put a, a headstone on there, so it was not an unmarked grave. Uh, so I, I dug, I tried to find his uh, war records, army records. Well. In 1955, there was a fire that destroyed all the World War I records. Like, oh, brother. I tracked down his brother in, somewhere in Washington who wrote, no, he was not abroad. There's no evidence that he was in 
France. He was in the army in the, what's called the Spruce, Spruce Production Division, meaning during World War I, they got soldiers to go into the woods and cut down trees for the war effort and also to break the strike. And he was part of that product, Spruce Production Group, but that he refused to participate in strike busting so that he spent most of the war in a stockade. So I, I did, I, I wrote about, I wrote an article for the Pacific Northwest Quarterly where I was as meticulous as I could tracking down everything. The only other thing I found was in the 1930s when one of the prisoners was still in jail and there was efforts, continuing efforts made to try to get him out, they got, there is this affidavit from a guy who says, I was in the car when he was castrated and I was a witness at the trial. So I, well, well, so I look at all the, the records of who was testifying at the trial. He did not testify at the trial. It's like, oh, that's a problem. And this is like 10 plus 15 years later claiming this. And there's all, kind, all kinds of rumors uh, about this, but nothing. So I concluded there's no proof. It's a myth. It, came, it, it appeared months after the event. None of the people at the time ever referred to it as castration. And, and he certainly wasn't in France. Now, that doesn't diminish, you know, his, his, he's got a history and, as an organizer and so on, but he wasn't a foreign veteran. Next, we turn to Elmer Smith and his disbarment years after the Centralia case. Were there any judges who opposed his disbarment or were more objective in their analysis of his situation? Did any of these judges face political consequences from organized labor for their decision against Elmer Smith? As I said, it took me 20 years to do this, sort of, you know, weekends, evenings, or whatever. So one year, I thought, okay, he's disbarred, he's reinstated. There's got to be records at the state library, the Supreme Court. So I wrote them, hey, have you got records on this? Yeah, we got records, but only the guy who's disbarred can see them. So I oh. So then a year or two later, I'm thinking to myself, well, so I wrote him back and I said, how about if his wife gives me permission to look at him? Will you, is that okay? And they said, yes. So I got the wife to write me a letter. So I go out, go out there. And here, among other things, is a initial opinion against him being disbarred that was being circulated. And that uh, I can only guess that somehow one, two people, I don't know, changed their mind because the original uh, thought was, no, this didn't rise to level, you know, calling a judge a tool of the lumber trust. You're gonna get disbarred for that. Uh, saying, uh, advocating, you know, supporting a strike. You know, that's a, uh, hey, uh, and the mule story. I mean, it just the, the paranoia is incredible. Are there any consequences for this kind of stuff? No, there wasn't. Oh, actually, there was. The, after Elmer died, there was a, a judge. One of these judges came up for an appointment, some state government appointment. And the labor unions at that time, not the Wobblies, because this was like uh, late 30s, rose up and said, no, this guy did the Wobblies and Elmer Smith wrong, and he's not going to get appointed to anything, and he didn't. He didn't. One last thing, um, the only mo any significant money whatsoever that Elmer ever won as a lawyer, because when he's defending <laughs> working class, he's not getting paid anything, uh, was a guy bought a new Ford car, and a rock came out and smashed through the window and injured him. 
and the Ford company had prepared a brochure saying that glass was unbreakable. <laughs> so it went to the state Supreme Court, and it was the first case, apparently, of its kind for holding a company liable for their promotional materials. Mm -hmm. And when I was in uh, law school, William Mitchell, and I'm in the uh, you know, contract class, and there's the case. You know, and so I said, hey, you know, this, the lawyer for this trial, this is a graduate of McAllister College, uh, McAllister, of William Mitchell. And, you know, hey, you should pay attention to this. Can Copeland talk more about Elmer Smith's family life, particularly his mother and father? His father was very weak. His father, uh, when he got, father got arrested, as I mentioned, right after the raid, his father and one of his brothers is sort of rounded up. They're just rounding up everybody. And his father was, was irate because he says, I'm not even a member of the IWW. You know, why are they arresting me? As if it was okay to arrest everybody else. Uh, so Elmer did not, was not close to his father, but he was very close to his mother. She would go to meetings on birth control, which was a big deal. And so, you know, father, no, no, you're not going to that. And she would say, no, I'm going, I'm going to these meetings on birth control. And so that I don't have a whole lot of information about her. That was, that was, that was, yeah, that was not nothing. Emma Goldman got deported and she, one of, she was into uh, spreading information about contraception. And that was, you know, hey, how times have changed, huh? And uh, people were being arrested for distributing materials talking about contraception, yeah. Did Elmer Smith feel guilty for telling the Wobblies to defend their hall and the resulting escalation of violence that occurred? Yeah, that's a tough one. A history professor that I ran across during this research first said that to me. And at first when he said that, yeah, Elmer probably had some measure of guilt about this. And my first reaction was, oh no, oh no. But the more I thought about it, yeah, because his advice was, you have a right to defend yourself. However, under state law, Self-defense did not include defending yourself from buildings across the street. So if the Wobblies were all inside the, their hall, and, and uh, self-defense case would have been very, very strong. But because they were away from the hall, wasn't. Now, did he know that they were gonna go away from the hall? I don't think so. The Wobblies weren't acting in coordination about this. So some people were in the hall, these other buildings and nobody knew about it. Some people had guns and other people didn't know they had guns. So this wasn't like a plot to shoot the, the marchers. However, as a lawyer, his advice kind of fell short of telling them all the implications of the limits of what they could and couldn't do. He was also uh, emotionally connected with the people he defended. And I would make the connection somewhat like William Kunstler. You know, Kunstler was, his life was involved with that. Versus like Clarence Darrow, another sort of analogy, Clarence Darrow was more hands-off. You know, he was, he was a, an advocate, but he wasn't of his, uh, his uh, people he was defending in a way that Kunstler was, in a way that Elmer Smith was. So because I think he was very emotionally connected with this, yeah, I think so. You know, he, he's, he's on trial for murder. He gave him advice. And these guys were put in jail for a long time, and probably, I don't think that diminishes what he did, but I can see where that kind of tore at him, and he did die of bleeding ulcers. And finally, did the Wobblies have any community or social initiatives, or did they provide any services to their community, similar to the Black Panthers, in addition to their labor activism? 
The Wobblies were different than any other labor organization. They were a social movement as well. Their members wrote poems, a lot of songs, a little red songbook. Their organizing halls were community of meeting places where people come to read and, and uh, socialize. They were, they were about the spirit as well as just the wage. And so there was a, a much more community social movement organization. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't into building institutions. So you know, one of the weaknesses, they'd have these free speech fights. Okay, everybody come to town, everybody get arrested. And uh, one guy tells me, yeah, I was part of the free speech fight. Everybody, there's be a little platform, you get up, and as soon as you talk, you get hauled away. So he's in line. And then as soon as he gets up there, he's getting, you know, they didn't arrest him immediately, and he didn't have anything to say. You know, he's like, <laughs> come on, take me away here. I don't, I don't know what to say. So, uh, but no, they weren't, they weren't creating, you know, the food, food services and the other kind of community services that the Black Panthers were doing. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to Friendly Connections, the podcast of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating us on iTunes. It takes just a few moments and is helpful in making this podcast more discoverable for your fellow listeners. We also hope you consider supporting the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library and its mission, Stronger Libraries for Stronger Communities. Learn more at thefriends.org. Follow us on Twitter at The Friends and on Facebook at facebook.com slash friendsofsppl. Thank you for listening.